You're listening to the Meditation and Attachment Podcast with George Haas. For more information, please visit our website at www.metagroup.org. That's www.m-e-t-t-a-g-r-o-u-p.org. It is um, 7.36 p.m. Pacific Daylight Time. This is Meditation and Attachment, Deepening Your Practice. It's October 14th, 2021. Um and I was going to talk about metta vipassana tonight, um, but I also thought that I would inquire whether you had some something questions or something that you didn't want to talk about. Good. So we were talking about views last time, and uh, one of the things about uh, views is that it. Uh, uh, you begin to understand this process of forming conceptual reality from ultimate reality. So you take in the data through the senses that you have, touching, seeing, hearing, tasting, smelling, and then there's the uh, sensing activity of mind. Mind really points you in the direction of things that have value to you. So that when you encounter a landscape that's filled with things that interest you or, or that are high in value to you, you think that the environment is rich. And when you enter an environment where um, there aren't a lot of high value uh, targets to focus on, you may, might find the environment uh, less interesting, um, less attention grabbing. Um, so to really unpack what that is, is where mind goes, it goes to the conditioned high value targets that are available to you in the environment, which means that you have these, these uh, valuations that uh, are part of the process of perceiving what's actually happening. Um, and the idea with Vipassana then is to, to go in and begin to explore this and see if you can actually bring into consciousness the nature of this uh, these preferences that you have in terms of the experience that you have. And then in exploring these preferences, begin to understand that they're conditioned based on experiences that you've had or on your capacity to imagine something. I think many people imagine that um, the future would be brighter if it included certain things or that the getting of something would be really uh, uh, rewarding. I remember I worked um, in when I uh, was in my twenties. I worked in New York. Uh, I lived in New York City, and I worked in nightclubs mainly to support myself. And um, I was a doorman, which is the person who decides who can come in and who can't come in. Uh, and uh, it's a, in some sense a mix. A mix. You're a mixer of the 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 society that forms within the club, and you're. You're adding elements or keeping elements out, depending on how the mix is going on a particular evening. But I work, when you're a doorman, you have bouncers or, or security is what we like to call them. Um, and they protect you from being beaten up by the people who don't like the choices that you make as you, you're creating the mix. And there's a lot of that uh, disgruntledness around what the mix is going to be for that particular night. And uh, obviously there's the, the uh, um, employer influence on what, what you're allowed to create and 
and then there's just your personal preferences. But I worked uh, for a, quite a long time um, with a, a guy and his whole goal in life was to save up enough money for a down payment so that he could get a Trans Am. Um, and do, do you remember what the, seven, the, the late 70s Trans Am looked like? They were sort of slick and he wanted the, the black one with the, the, the eagle across the hood of it. And, uh, and he was dogged in, in, in saving the money that he needed to do this. And uh, as he got closer and closer to the goal, he got more and more excited. And then when he had the money and he went to the dealer and he bought the car and he drove it for the, to the, for the first time to the club to show us all of uh, the car, it was, it was, uh, he was just exhilarated. But you know how driving around in a big city is and having to park on the street and it's in the Northeast, so it snows. And um, by the end of the, the winter, uh, he was not enthusiastic about the car at all. In fact, he thought it was a pain in the ass. <laughs> it kept getting stolen. That was the thing that, that he would park it on the street and it kept getting stolen. Then it would come back and it would be sort of beat up and he'd have to get it fixed. And, um, in those days, they had these uh, clip-on uh, um, wheels things that made them look like that it was a custom wheel. And those would be stolen like once a week. It was a, a mind-boggling thing. So it became a kind of a kleptocracy in terms of maintaining the car. <laughs> But for that year, that run-up, it was so enticing, the idea of, of, of the car. So we have to pay attention to how we create these uh, uh, concepts in the mind uh, and these preferences um, and the energies that flow into them um, and take us out of the experience of the present moment. I often ask the question, what is so terrible about the present moment? that you can't inhabit it even for another minute. Even another five seconds, you have to jump out into some kind of uh, thought process of the, the future planning or the, the sort of nostalgia of the, the past. So one of the things about Vipassana meditation is that you go into these areas and you begin to examine these, uh, these formulations and the patterns of how they arise. I, uh, sometimes direct people to do an investigation of self-generated emotions, since most of us regulate the experience of the present moment by thinking. Uh, something happens in the present moment, there's a response to it, uh, a thinking response and an emotional response to it. If the emotion exceeds our capacity to hold the emotional experience, then we have an emotional event that needs to be regulated. And if we're not conscious of that, then the mind simply turns on the thought processes associated with regulating that experience. Where did that all come from? Um, all of this conditioning. I think one of the things that makes uh, discovering conditioning so uh, uh, difficult in the beginning is because the earliest part of our conditioning experience we don't remember. So when we are born, our autobiographical memory system isn't online yet. Our procedural memory is online. 
And uh, we're also completely dependent. And so what we do is turn ourselves over to the care of the person or persons that come to take care of us. And we formulate a sense of ourselves and a sense of other people based on that early interaction. One of the things that's so important in uh, child, uh, infant, uh, um, parent relationship is the, the mirroring. And really in the beginning, how we begin to understand ourselves is as it's reflected off the experience of the other person. That is to say, we, we respond, we, we create an action in the world. It's received by other people and then they reflect back to us their experience of that action. And depending on what that reflection is in that very early crucible of caregiver and infant, we begin to construct the working model of ourselves and uh, construct the working model of other people and what we can expect from other people. This collection of our expectations of what we might, of how people might respond to us is really how we form a sense of the world that we inhabit and the way that uh, our uh, experience, our um, uh, spontaneous uh, uh, actions in the world as an infant and how they're re reflected back to us create the experience of how uh, uh, we understand ourselves. Um, so, uh, you know, an example of that uh, would be that you were uh, um, a colicky baby. My mother said to me that I was a colicky baby and that there was nothing that she could do to get me to quiet down. Uh, and uh, and uh, part of the apology that she made to me was that she mistreated me when I was an infant because of that. Um, but what that uh, translated to, to me is, is that I was demanding and that I was too much, and that I, I needed too much from other people, and that it was unreasonable to expect that people could meet my needs, um, which has not turned out to be true in the slightest as an adult, right? But it still is a view that can easily be, uh, can easily arise if I feel like I, I'm uh, demanding. So, uh, this is this piece of exploration that begins to happen as you go into the Vipassana practice. We start really in the beginning by developing these techniques that we can use to begin to um, dissect the experience that we're having. So we create conceptual reality in some ways, we deconstruct it, right? We de deconstruct the experience of ourselves to understand all of these components that come together to create the experience. And then we deconstruct the models that we've created of other people. And what's particularly important is the expectations that you have of what other people will or will not be able to do in terms of taking care of you. If you decide that uh, nobody's uh, reliable or able to take care of you, then uh, as you get older, you begin to stop asking them to do it. 
doesn't mean that there aren't people that could do it. it. It means more that you're not asking those people to do it. So I like to use uh, Shinzen's uh, uh, techniques for this because they're fairly easy to understand for the Vipassana side. And then uh, if you've been around uh, and, and paid attention to the what I'm trying to teach is the metta jhana side or the high concentration, uh, loving kindness, uh, compassion, joyfulness, and equanimity. The reason that, that I like the metta vipassana way of going is because it, it's easy to encounter difficult and uh, negative experiences that are uh, in that construction of self and world and that if you don't have a good way to regulate them, it just kicks off the whole defensive regulation system that you have in place. So it can, in some sense, become reinforcing of that system rather than resolving of that system. But when you uh, develop uh, through the metta side of practice intentional positivity, then you can counterbalance the negativity that might arise in the vipassana side of practice slip out of the Vipassana practice into the positive side. And as you're uh, abiding in the positive state, of course, things will come up, insights will arise, and that if you want to explore them, then you can slide back into the Vipassana side. And in this way, keep uh, it's easier to keep equanimity or balance in terms of the way that the practice goes. Uh, in my experience as a meditation teacher on retreat, uh, if it's a straight Vipassana retreat, the first two or three days of the retreat, the main job of a meditation teacher is to emotionally regulate people as they settle into the uh, in, internal exploration uh, and the dysregulation that can arise from that. But it, on a metta Vipassana retreat, where the first two or three days of the retreat are uh, uh, just purely metta practice, that level of emotional dysregulation that's so common in Vipassana retreats doesn't really happen. It's unusual to have somebody need uh, emotional regulation on a metta Vipassana retreat where it's, it's totally ordinary on a Vipassana-only retreat. You often hear uh, in meditation circles a preference for Vipassana um, because Vipassana is, the long goal of Vipassana is enlightenment, and that you don't hear of metta often as a path to enlightenment, although I think that it is considered one. And that also the experience of uh, many people uh, is these negative, negatively infused, let's say, working models of self and other, and so to touch into them is to touch into these negative uh, constructs of mind and then an aversion that can arise around that. And that the metta side feels mechanical and uh, unproductive in terms of producing particular uh, positive states. And that's really the main reason that I like to teach it as a high concentration practice because you get into these high concentrated states on positivity uh, and that becomes the view, and so that when you, when conceptual reality is formed, the whole experience of reality is filled with uh, a sense of positivity. Um, 
the near enemy of, of uh, metta or loving kindness is sentimentality. And when you use uh, phrases that are meant to generate uh, the feeling of loving kindness, the emotion of loving kindness, you could often slip out of the experience of uh, the present moment into the, the generation of the positive state. So it becomes a kind of self-generated emotional experience that takes you out of the present moment. Whereas having to hold the mind state keeps you embedded in the present moment. So if you have this cocoon of uh, positivity that you can hold your experience in until it settles, until that wave of negativity arises and passes, then you're, you're back in shape to be able to go back into the Vipassana side and explore um, your conditioning to be really to begin to see what, what happened, to make sense about what happened, and to see what's useful in terms of the skill set that you gained through the kind of experiences that you've had, uh, what are unskillful, to begin to drop the unskillful means and reinforce the skillful means. And in doing that, what you typically notice is that uh, when dropping uh, the unskillful means, even though it's unskillful, it is functional and regulatory of experience and that uh, you need to then develop a replacement for it since uh, the body-mind cannot be emotionally dysregulated for too long. It will regulate itself. If that means using an unskillful means to do it, it will use an unskillful means. The long goal of meditation, of course, is to see things the way that they are. Uh, and really what we mean by that is that you see the sacredness of this experience of this life and that you act uh, accordingly so you view it as this precious sacred experience and you act as if each moment has that quality of sacredness to it if you were to do that of course it changes the way that you value uh, the experiences of the present moment uh, it, it changes the way that you value the relationship with yourself and also their interactions with the people uh, around you that who are uh, supporting you, encouraging you to, to explore things. If you were to track how you actually value things now, you may notice that not all of your uh, actions and reactions are in that frame of sacredness. In the um, Theravada world and Chinzen's world, when I, uh, for, um, for the most of my um, practice experience, uh, the, the, these concepts weren't really talked about in that way. In a secular mindfulness world, um, we might use the word engaged or engagement rather than the word sacred. But when uh, in sitting with Dan Brown and, and practicing in uh, the Bond tradition or the Rime tradition, um, uh, the, those practices tend to lead to th these uh, uh, sacred experiences. And so it's, it, it, that uh, has been partly the reason for the, the shift in my perspective on this. 
From an attachment point of view, of course, what we're talking about is the secure base that you put around yourself, the people that are close to you that you rely on to support you uh, and encourage you to explore the things that you find meaningful and also that are available to you to help you emotionally regulate so that you're in good shape to explore. Uh, it's collaborative. The relationships are collaborative so that you are uh, taking care of them in a way that they like to be taken care of. Uh, then, and you emotionally regulate them, you attend to them. The advantage you get out of that, of course, is that then they're in good shape to take care of you. In relationships that are not particularly reciprocal, what you hear often is that one person is taken care of and, fi and finds that the relationship is working well and the other person is burning out. Uh, and uh, it's hard for the person who's feeling well taken care of to understand that the way that they're reciprocating is leading to their partner's burnout um, because they think that if somebody took care of them in the way that uh, they were taking care of their partner, they would be fine. Um, and so that's uh, uh, um, not seeing clearly in the sense that I mean. You need to have the people on your team, your secure base in really good shape so that you can come back totally wrecked from the exploration that you've engaged in and that they have the time, energy and resources to patch you back up so that you can go out again. Uh, and if you don't have that, then uh, you'll uh, end up having to limit your exploration uh, so that you don't exceed the the care that's available to patch you up. This is a conundrum, really. We all have a limited amount of energy, and I notice as aging uh, advances that that amount gets smaller <laughs> all on its own. <laughs> and so there has to be greater care, not less care, in how you allocate the use of it. And you need to have enough that you can explore in a way that's meaningful. And at the same time, you need to allocate some of it uh, to the secure base that you have so that you, you don't have to limit your exploration. One of the things uh, to pay attention to, of course, is that having a group of people attend to you and take care of you actually uses less energy than you having to do it all yourself. That it's much more efficient to have other people available and uh, helpful in particularly in the times when you're the most stressed and can't do it for yourself than to wait around to come out of the stress then to be able to take care of yourself so that when you really pay attention to the allocations of energy having a secure base a few uh, relationships that are really supportive that's actually a better use of energy than not having them and trying to do all of that on your own. Um, an example might be that you're, it takes a, a close friend of yours or a romantic partner of yours uh, 20 or 30 minutes to emotionally regulate you where it could take you three or four days to do the same amount of regulation because they're in a balanced place and they can extend that to you where you're in an unbalanced place and finding 
The balance, again, is much harder when you're in that state. So there's the intentional development of uh, positivity in the metta vipassana approach. In the vipassana only approach, um, I've I've noticed in many communities uh, that the positive side gets short shrift in terms of practice energy. There's a lot of bearing down on the insight side and not much in the development of the the. Um, uh, I like to call it positivity. What's life like if most of the time, I would say 95 or 98% of the time, the mind is in a positive frame in comparison to a mind that half the time is in a negative state or uh, more than half the time in a negative state? How different is it uh, to uh, um, be in this life that you're in how easily is it uh, for you to be in ordinary things? One of the things that I notice quite a bit in, in the work that I do is that um, when people come from uh, challenged backgrounds, they tend to find the ordinariness of life unsatisfying. They want something more than that, something that's compensatory for the things that they've suffered. Uh, they want a sense of specialness that they didn't really experience when they were um, young, when they were children. And so there's a real problem with ordinariness in uh, experience. Um, yet, if you think about the, the repetition of the days of, of a life, uh, so much of it is the same. I mean, it's completely different and not qualified or obligated to what happened before. But often it's the same. Uh, uh, if you were to look at my life, it would seem, I guess, or at least from an, a younger version of myself, an extraordinarily regimented life. Uh, I get up at the same time. I have breakfast at the same time. I work long hours. Um, most days of the week have a similar uh, structure to them as the other days of the week. Um, so then how do you participate in this, the ordinariness of this and at the same time be joyful to see the, the sacredness in this ordinariness? How do you abandon the need uh, to be special or to be compensated for and come into the experience of the present moment and be there? So as we pull things apart, if you look at the, the uh, progress of insight, which is the Theravada map, uh, um, progress of insight is a, commentary that uh, Asi Seydau wrote that, that is uh, popular in the West. Um, uh, it's the map that I typically use in teaching uh, the Theravada path. It's based on the four uh, path model of enlightenment. 
uh, which is based on the eradication of the 10 fetters. So the, one of the things I find um, lovely about the Buddhist tradition is that because it was oral, they made lists so that you could remember everything that you needed to include in, when you were talking about it. First, we come into this place where we, we see the sensing experience distinctly. So we, we have the touching aspect of the body, the seeing aspect, the hearing aspect, the tasting aspect, the smelling aspect, and, uh, and the mind, the knowing aspect. So there's the sensing and there's the knowing, and we see that clearly. This is what I'm sensing, this is what I make it into. And then we're back to the, the conditioning. Um, an object that can be sensed has contact with the capacity to sense. A consciousness of the sensing experience arises, which awareness knows. It's evaluated for processing speed and then compared to the perceptual database. There's a match in the database that's close enough, the undifferentiated, unattached, ultimate uh, sensing data fixates into that meaning which is then projected outward as conceptual reality that's actually what's happening moment by moment and then conceptual reality forms based on the meanings that you make out of the experience of ultimate reality and your database is different than everybody else's database and so you come to understand that your perspective, your uh, version of things, your conceptual reality is unique to you. It's a unique sensibility that just you have. And then part of this process of communicating, of being intimate with other people is uh, exploring how your unique sensibility um, relates to their unique sensibility. And then the second step is to really notice mind and mind's very uh, constant curation of what comes into consciousness, how it selects things. So you have the full range of, of possibilities to focus on and the mind picks up the things that resonate with it and everything else isn't included in the making of that experience. And then you explore the marks of existence, uh, anatta, anicca, and dukkha, anatta, uh, understanding that the sense of self arises based on the conditions in the present moment, and that uh, if the conditions are different, this, the experience of self is different. There's no need to defend it, because it is ephemeral in the sense that it's a version of the it's a conditioned response to the conditions of the moment. The sense of self opens and there's this uh, creation of duality where you, you uh, as part of the sensing experience, uh, experience sensing something that's separate or outside of yourself. Conceptual reality is the thing that we think is out there. That's the splitting when you tie it into the experience of ultimate reality and move in this direction of rocking back and forth, constantly comparing uh, what you've created with what you're sensing, then that sense of uh, duality collapses. 
Anicca uh, uh, is translated as impermanence mostly. Impermanence means that nothing lasts, so nothing micro, nothing macro. This is the nature of it. Um, it does, in the beginning, I think for most people, including myself, create a sense of fearfulness that nothing will last. Um, nothing can be really counted on. You have to be ready to act in the present moment based on conditions. Uh, there's some uh, sense of movement or, or direction, but um, everything comes and goes. How do you wrap your head around that? Including you and me and everybody else, you know. And then the last one is dukkha, commonly translated as suffering. Um, Shinzen used to translate it as unsatisfactoriness. Dan Brown translates it as reactivity. You live in a body that has sensing capacities. And whether you're fully enlightened or not, they still react when they meet a sense object. So we don't get out of that. When we get out of dukkha, we don't we don't get out of reacting to the sense objects that we encounter. Um, the first uh, aspect of uh, that is uh, old age, sickness, and death. We all, I think, here know aging, um, but you have to get into your thirties to know aging because before that, you're just getting better. You're growing. We, we, we peak in the growing process in our mid-20s. Uh, so it's a long experience of just everything getting better, and us getting more capable, and then we hit that uh, moment when we start to age, and it can be quite puzzling. And then you sort of hit a stride, and that lasts into your mid, earlier mid-50s, and then there's another accelerator punch on aging, uh, which is also quite bewildering. Um, and then if you have the, the longevity genes, you live into old, old age. The second aspect of that is that you get what you want, but it's impermanent, so it doesn't last. So you can't hold on to it. You can get it, but you can't hold on to it. It's kind of like the story of the firebird at the beginning that I was talking about, the idea of this, the idea of this, the idea of this, of course. The moment that it's brand new and it's everything that you wanted arises and passes. The pristine, unblemished nature of the new car uh, and disappears as it wears. Even if you get what you want, you lose it. The next one is sometimes you can't get what you want. Who thought that up? <laughs> and then the third is sometimes you have to put up with things you don't want. That's the second level in three parts. The third level is the subtle, constant, ongoing irritation that nothing is exactly the way that you would have it if you were actually in charge of anything, which is a double-edged sword. It's not how you want it, and you're not in charge. 
we do like a sense of being in charge, of having some power, some agency. And then uh, on the progress of insight path, the fourth stage is exploring the impermanent nature of things. So that really is turning inward and focusing on experiences that are arising and passing. So uh, we would call that piti in Pali, or Shinzen calls it flow. Uh, noticing everything arises and passes, both the macro arises and passes, all those elaborate constructs that we have, but each individual subtle sensing experience arises and passes. And again, on the Vipassana side of this, we come into this place of, of narrowing our focus into in individual sense gates and just watching that, this constant arising and passing, this kind of um, vibratory energy that is life. And then if we become frightened by that experience, we can pull back into the meta side and hold a sense of positivity, a sense of safety until the fearfulness uh, declines and ends, everything including that is impermanent. And that shoot back into the Vipassana side to explore that further until we can come into a place of equanimity with it and it's no longer frightening. When that happens, the whole uh, construct of the body-mind dissolves into energy. And then we can't locate ourselves in space. We're just pure energy. And then everything is brilliantly clear. Every little arising and passing is vivid. And we can just abide in that, that place of energy until we're spit out like a watermelon seed or a olive pit. And then we're back in the solid, congealed sense of self, and uh, we're terrified that there isn't a, an ongoing, continuous self, and we're miserable that nothing will last, and we're frightened uh, of our own mortality. And so we pull back into the metta side and hold that experience in positivity until we can, we can begin to adjust to the, the nature of that. There's a, a drop down into the desire to be relieved of suffering that pulls you out of that. that uh, it's called knowledge of the miseries in Buddhism. It's called the dark night of the soul in the Christian uh, contemplative practice. Then you come into a place called reobservation where you begin to deeply integrate these experiences. So you hold a sense of positivity until you're balanced and then you shoot into the Vipassana side and examine over and over again the nature of the experience that you're having until you can see clearly in each present moment that this is actually what's happening, but it's also what's always been happening. So that you you take on an understanding of what what this actually is, uh, rather than the, the constructs of solidity and permanence, um, eternal life in the human body that you're in.
Is that all making sense? One of the things that happens in the Vipassana only practice is that uh, when things get really too difficult, too negative, uh, people typically stop practicing as a way of regulating that and they wait for the negativity to pass. And um, um, if you're doing a, 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 the metta side and your, your long goal isn't enlightenment, then uh, you can pump up positivity but not do any of the exploration uh, and so fail to see the the true nature of things and really be in um, positive states that are self-generated and not really related to the present moment. So again, I'm, I'm advocating for my strong bias <laughs> for Vedavapasada. But why don't we do some practice, uh, a basic see here feel practice. Uh, we've been doing metta for the last uh, few weeks. Um, go ahead and take your meditation posture and I'll give the instructions as we go. So any comments or questions about the practice we did this evening? question about the noting practice when uh -huh. I notice a sound I also notice I also have a picture in my head so yeah. how did I note that the idea then would be to zoom in until you only have awareness of one and then note whichever one the mind goes to and see if you can do that with no preference okay does that make sense? Yeah. <laughs> it's just a zooming in. Where do, sometimes it'll, I, I'm very visual, so it almost always goes to the picture. But some people are auditory, so it almost always goes to the auditory. And then you okay. have, that, that's one of the ways that you figure out whether you're a visual or auditory thinker. Yeah. All right. Thank you. Really, what you're doing is you're, you're holding a wide view. And that's why two two of them are happening at the same time, because you know spatially, talk is back here usually, and visual is up here, and the space isn't very big. But you just zoom in a little bit so that only one can be uh, visible or sensible. Thanks. Good enough. Yeah. Someone else. Good. Um, so let's see. Uh, we're in the middle of the level one day long series. So I don't think it's this Saturday, but the following Saturday is the second day long. And then um, let me look. And then after that is the a couple of weeks after that is the third one. Um, so yeah, the next level one is on the 23rd and then two weeks after that. Um, we have three spots left in the retreat coming up. If you want, we're considering that. Uh, probably a good idea to sign up. Um, we're going to do a, a level two starting in January. If you're interested in going into a deeper dive on the attachment stuff, 
And then uh, in, in the late winter, in the spring, we're going to repeat the level one series. We're going to do it uh, both on a Saturday and, and on a Sunday. Uh, we had some requests from people to, to do it on Sunday because they can't come to the Saturday one. Um, I'm going to do an addiction retreat in February, and uh, it's a, a weekend thing, so uh, all day, uh, six hours on Saturday, four hours on Sunday. And so most of those things are up on the website. Uh, take a look if you're interested in them. Um, I offer this class on a Donna basis. Donna is the Pali word for generosity. So I offer the teaching freely, but I do hope you'll support us by making a donation and help support me and also the work that Metagroup is doing. Um, you can find a link on the website. Any amount is appreciated. And of course, if you're not resourced, please come. We're happy to support your practice. Um, thank you. And I'll see you, I hope, soon on the path somewhere. <laughs>